I call it chasing my paintings. I want to live the way that I paint and I want to find balance and I want to have it be organic, one stroke, one character built upon the next with geometric and then organic shapes, soft and hard. These things that are juxtaposed, living in harmony, this is how I'm supposed to live. Yet I have no freaking clue how to do it. And so the painting is a driving force for my life now. And so I I just need to learn how to talk softer and be kinder to myself as it'll take a whole lifetime and I'm not going to figure it out. It's, It's hard. So did you ever notice how sometimes life brings us to our knees in order to bring us back to our essence? It leaves nothing left to do other than listen for and follow that voice that says there's something inside of you that is so true, so visceral, so real that it must get out and there's no longer any way to avoid it. It's time. Question is, what happens when we honor that voice? Do things magically get easier, come roaring back to life? Does the universe truly support the way we so often hear it does? Or does it continue to walk away? Well, there's only one way to know, and that is to heed the call. And that's exactly what my guest today, Mike Hahn, has done. Mike loved art as a kid, even began studying it, but didn't see a way to make a living at it. So he buried the impulse and got an entry-level job in a sushi restaurant. Now, over the years, he became a deeply skilled and sought-after omakase sushi chef, rising up in that world, and was just about to open his own place when the pandemic hit. Literally overnight, he found himself without work, without a vision, without enough money to pay his rent that month, and to a certain extent, out of hope. But he still had one thing, that artistic impulse that had never left him. And it began calling him louder than ever, not as a sushi chef, but as the visual artist that had been inside him since childhood. And the chain of events that unfolded over the next two years, frankly, it's hard to explain in any rational sense. He said yes to the call and the universe did in fact rise up to support him time and time again in the most astonishing ways after seemingly failing him over and over again. In his more recent past, Mike has now made massive waves as a rising artist who proudly reps Detroit as his home with large-scale collaborations with global brands like LinkedIn, Vitamin Water, and Google, public art projects, and private commissions. Informed by his time as a sushi chef, his visual art has become this deeply reverent practice based on an understanding that in order to create, you must also destroy. And his story is a testament to that. His graffiti-inspired artwork is an exploration of his Korean heritage, sustainability, and human connectedness. And through his work, Mike strives to achieve something we all strive for, balance, by connecting people and places and ideas. His work has now been featured on BBC World News, Design Boom, Cool Hunting, Architectural Digest, Apartment Therapy, Detroit Free Press, on the cover of Scene Magazine, so many other great places. He's also an Art Prize Equity Grant Award winner, and his work is featured in the permanent collection of Huntington Bank, Mercedes-Benz Financial Services, Henry Ford Health System, Shinola Hotel, Daxon Hotel, and more. In our conversation, we talk about Mike's journey and explore the ways art has shaped his own life and even saved him at times. And we dive into his unique process as an artist, deeply reverential to the medium he uses and deeply respectful with a mind on sustainability and dignity. And he offers his own interpretation of what art can look like and mean to all of us. So excited to share this conversation with you. So quick note before diving in. Thoughts of suicide are discussed in this conversation. If you feel this may in any way be more triggering than helpful, please take care when listening or deciding not to. 
I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So excited to learn more about you, to dive into it. You have a fascinating story and sort of like this really interesting trajectory. And I want to explore that a bit with you. As we have this conversation here right now, you're, from what I understand, pretty much a full-time artist, but in the very not-too-distant past, art was something that was a part of you, but it was never the thing that was really centered. So I want want to trace that a little bit, but I want to take an even bigger step back in time first. Yeah. So you're a Korean-American. Your mom comes over here, from what I understand, like early 70s-ish and lands in the Cash Corridor in Detroit, mm-hmm. which is such an interesting neighborhood in the 70s. Like, And in no small part, I almost feel like there's some foreshadowing, yeah. you know, like fast forward in your life and sort of like, because from what I know of that neighborhood, like especially in the early 70s, it's really similar to, in a lot of ways, like the Lower East Side in New York in the 80s, mm-hmm. where it was rough. There was drugs, there was crime, but there was also like stunning art emerging from that scene. I'm curious, like whether you've 
you've talked to her about that time in her life or like whether you've sort of like looked back at the cast like around that time? Yeah, I guess it's a dark spot in her in her past. She was traumatized, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being a young Korean woman, you know, and uh, couldn't speak English well and a family of five um, they were there, you know, sharing a, a, you know, I think a one bedroom or a studio, something like that in a basement. And um, there were people being carted out of the building in, in an ambulance, you know, dead or overdosed or whatever, you know, it was really a terrible time for her. She hated Detroit when she was young. Um, she didn't want to be there. Uh, she was the first time she's ever seen a black person. And in Detroit, it was violent and it was you know it was was just completely foreign you know to her from coming from south korea and it's interesting because i was also i was born years later my first inspiration came from soho in the late 80s early 90s we were in connecticut so it's really interesting that kind of and around both of those uh, places and also later in my life when i lived in detroit i lived a few blocks away from where she immigrated into and i lived across from what they called needle park you know, stadiums across the street from there. And that's changing. <laughs> um, but it's, we've both gotten to see that neighborhood from a, um, maybe not, not its best, you know, moments. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. It, it sounds like you, you, you have had conversations with your mom about that time though, which is interesting also, because I know I've talked to uh, like friends and, and we've had conversations on the podcast over the years with folks whose parents came over both from a really traumatic situation sometimes and then landed in a really traumatic situation in this country. And very often, not only did they have no interest in sharing any of these stories with their kids, but they very intentionally didn't ever want to center them in their own memories and then share them with their kids, often until sort of like the much later days, if ever, because it was so traumatizing. But it sounds like you have, you've had a more open dialogue about that. It's, it's actually because of when I first explored the city in 2010, we had moved around a lot and ended up by no. chance. Uh, I mo- ended up finishing high school in Plymouth Canton and she had by chance gone to Salem. And so we had been, you know, moved probably six times before landing there. Um, so just by chance, you know, back in her old stomping ground. And after a while of traveling, doing, uh, um, going to college, coming back and, uh, 2010 decided to explore Detroit because I never gave it a chance because I was told by, you know, everybody, like, it's just, there's nothing for you there unless you go for a game or something. But I was curious from a creative standpoint. So my mom didn't like that. And that's when like, we, we first started talking about like, why, like, why don't you like that place? You know? And so she had just had yeah some very bad first impressions. Yeah. That's so interesting that that was the catalyst for the conversation actually. Mm. And apparently it didn't scare you away. <laughs> uh, no, I fell in love, which was kind of crazy in 2010. <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Um, your family ended up bouncing around a fair bit when you're a kid, you know, like Ann Arbor, Boston, Westport, Connecticut, Holland, Michigan, and finally different places you referenced. And you mentioned also like when you were younger, you started going in um, to the city and that became an early art influence for you. I'm guessing in no small part because there's also, that was sort of like the tail end of the, the sort of like the legendary downtown art scene in New York with like the pop art, like, you know, Basquiat, Herring, like all these guys down there. What was, was that your attraction to the scene? Yeah. So uh, I got to experience Herring's pop shop while it was still around, just caught the very tail end and, you know, the subways and everything. So like, yeah, I just got very lucky. You know, I didn't know what it was when I was young. But it it left a, a huge mark on me. And um, then from a food standpoint, I actually got introduced to sushi 
because of New York City and living on the East Coast as well at a very young age, you know, four or five was art, sushi. And what I didn't understand at that time also was uh, design as uh, dad worked for Noel, um, which was, uh, he worked for Herman Miller before then, and then Noel in New York. And so mid-century modern has become, you know, a big part of my life. And I didn't, I didn't understand all these things came from the same time, same place. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you've got like these different influences coming into you from different angles and it's all kind of spinning around in your head, knowing that you like the different pieces, but not really seeing how it all ties together quite yet. Yep. So for those who don't know also, so so Keith Haring, legendary pop artist, for years, he had this little shop on Lafayette down like in, in the village and you could go in there and just check out like all sorts of different stuff. And the whole inside of the shop was just like his art on the walls and the floors and the ceiling. And um, I'm trying to remember when that went away. I remember just like spending serious chunks of time there also. I'm curious, when you were in and around the city, there was another place in New York that became this legendary place. In the early days, it was called the Fun Factory. Eventually, like 2002-ish, becomes Five Points, which is this absolutely iconic mecca for street art. Like the best, the best aerosol artists in the world travel around the world to go to this place. And the building was stunning. Did, did you um, spend any time there? It's one of my great regrets. Uh, ah. I, fo- I followed it from afar and appreciate it from afar. And they raised it. It's something that pained me when I thought, yeah, when I, it's like, before I got to visit, I was like, are you serious? Like, how, how could you destroy an institution for uh, a movement, you know, that was born in New York? You know, it feels like it's, that was, it was a really, um, painful, I think, kind of thing to miss. Yeah, it was this incredible place. We actually, we have a really interesting tie-in from Good Life Project. So when we, the project is 10 years old now, we started in 2012. And the same year that we launched what became the video series and became the podcast, we also launched this year-long, what we used to call a Good Life Project immersion, which was sort of like this deep dive with a group of people into business and work and art and creativity. And that year, um, we took a whole group of people over to Five Points, you know, like people that traveled all around. We're in Manhattan. We jump on the subway. We go over. We come out. And Five Points, for those who don't know, it's, it was this about a 200,000 square foot warehouse that had since the early 90s been like just painted in the most stunning art you've ever seen. And so we were there in 2012. And the guy who ends up, you know, he's an artist himself, Jonathan Cohn. His like, artist name is Mears One. He ends up being the curator of the building and he's just showing us around. He's literally touring us through the whole place and the history of like the different works and the art and jaw dropping. And literally we get back on a subway into Manhattan and a few months later, everybody wakes up and the entire building has been whitewashed. And it was like the most heartbreaking thing. But uh, thankfully it is remembered in a whole lot of images, but such a powerful sort of like place for people to actually share their art. So you're sort of, swirling around these influences and it sounds like you know like these are all interests to you as a kid but art especially is never something where you're thinking okay so i could potentially make this my thing support myself like make it the the main thing that i do you do spend a little bit of time from what i understand in art school you end up in otis in la that doesn't last all that long so tell me what happened here you know, getting there was kind of weird. So, because again, I never considered art to be a career. I never considered sushi to be a career. Um, both things kind of just they they happened as life, you know, kind of happens. And so, it was actually uh, sushi came first. In I was at Purdue studying hospitality management, and I applied at a restaurant that was Korean Japanese um, as a server or a host. 
And they asked me if I want to learn how to make sushi because <laughs> I don't know, maybe I looked the part in Indiana. And so I'm like, all right, cool. Sounds good. You know, like I've been eating it for, you know, uh, my entire life. So I picked it up really, really quick and I really enjoyed it. I happened to be pretty good with my hands. And so it just, it worked out really well. And then I had some kind of, you know, personal trauma there and tried to kill myself <laughs> and then uh, moved back home because I was like super depressed and like really, you know, struggling and didn't know what I was going to do with my life and all that stuff. And parents decided uh, to take me um, to Korea for the first time. And I've never, uh, this is my first and only time. And that was, yeah, 2000, maybe I think something like that. And so we went and that was kind of a life-changing experience. Got to witness, uh, you know, a Korean calligraphy master, you know, uh, painting and and eat, you know, Korean food, and, you know, on the, the um, around the coast and have fresh seafood and just all this amazing stuff. And, and then I got to meet um, some family over there. And my aunt, she was formerly in fashion design, but while she was out in Korea, she ended up uh, transitioning her practice into making fashion for dolls. Mm -hmm. And so really foreign to me. And, you know, I was just in a weird place at that time. And she, you know, I think she had some inkling that I was creative and she asked if I wanted to be part of a show. And I was like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm not doing anything, you know? And so I made a piece and then I got to collaborate with a, an artist uh, there, um, a little a sculptor. We made like a polymer sculpture together. It was called The Beautiful Death. It was this young girl who cuts out her own heart to give it to a doll to give the doll life. Like super morbid. I was in a very bad place. <laughs> um, but I thought there was something beautiful about this idea of giving, giving life, sacrificing to give you know, life. And it was, you know, all in the form of dolls. And it was in Samji, which is kind of like, you know, the creative center of Korea. So yeah, my first show was in Seoul, which is crazy. And uh, someone, you know, wanted to buy the piece. My dad's like, no, they're not allowed to. It's the first thing you've made. Hmm. Um, so he he preserved it. And before we got back, I started researching like dolls and like I, I loved characters and and cartoons and things like that, you know, for my youth. And so I found out there's this thing called Urban Vinyl. And there were this movement at that time uh, emerging of uh, small vinyl figures that were made for adults that were art toys, mm. essentially. And so I, you know, researched, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do something like this is like, this is what I want to do. And I found uh, that there was one school in America that had a toy design program and it was Otis. And so we found out that they had a, a couple weeks until the deadline and, I was like, well, whatever, I'm going to shoot my shot, you know, and I broke out some lined paper and started drawing stick figures on lined paper. Uh, one of them being of a stick figure of me uh, stapling my finger to a piece of paper because I did that once when I was a kid. Super weird, terrible portfolio. I didn't have one. Sent it in. And then when we got back home, you know, I decided, you know, like, I don't care if I get in, like, I'm going to go to LA because that's where the scene is, you know, like the the art toys and all that stuff are there. And so I packed my stuff in my car and I was ready to go. My parents were freaking out because I didn't get accepted. And so one day before I was supposed to leave, we came back from dinner or something and there was a voicemail on, and it said that, uh, you know, congratulations, you got an no notice. <laughs> and so I drove out as planned, you know, and, uh, but I actually had a place to go, which was great and dropped out because like life drawing and like all the stuff that like real artists actually do. I'm like, wait a minute. Like I thought I was going to get to like make toys here and uh so i didn't i didn't last more than a semester or two <laughs> hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you go out there, though, and you land in L.A., what happens that makes you realize, because this is a huge thing, right? You go to Korea, like you have this experience, it lights a fire inside of you. You come back home. I have to imagine this was an interesting set of conversations with your parents saying, this is what I want to do. You know, you go through the whole process of applying and then literally picking up and moving out to L.A. and then you're in school. When you realize, oh, actually, like this isn't going to work. What's that moment like for you? I turned to sushi again. (laughs) So it was like, it was the, a sidestep, right? And it was like, okay, well, like I can't, like everybody at art school, like they hated me. I mean, they saw my portfolio. They're like, what is this guy doing here? I'm like, they just wanted to take my money. I mean, like (laughs) I, I know I don't, but like everybody had like these gorgeous portfolios and all this, like they've been doing art for, you know, their whole lives. And I'm like, this hack. So I didn't fit in, you know, and um, 
And so there was this place that was uh, being built in Glendale um, at the new Americana when Americana was brand new. Uh, There's a restaurant called Katsuya. And I had been researching, you know, some like, you know, really great sushi places because in LA, you know, there's great sushi. And this particular restaurant was designed by Philippe Stark. And so I was really interested because the place was gorgeous. The food had a great reputation. And so I went and applied and got to try out. And, you know, I'd only been making sushi for, you know, a couple of years. And it was like in Indiana, you know, I'm trying out against people who, you know, been doing sushi for a while in LA and they have you just go through the gauntlet and, you know, make all this stuff. And once I got selected, then I think that was the decision. I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to I'm just going to work, you know, like if I can't, you know, do what I want to do, then I'm going to just work. And um, so I got to do that. And then after like two months, then the owner, Chef Katsuya Uichi, I believe, um, he then asked me to work for his personal restaurant in Encino, where his office was, as he's got like his own chef owned. And then he's got the corporate, you know, super fancy ones. And so then I got to work for him for a little bit. So it was, it was a really great experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm detecting a common theme here also, which is you get interested in something. And you just kind of like throw your hat in the ring <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and say like, let me just see what happens here, which is, you know, it's really hard for most people to do, especially you know, if you're describing like you're coming out of kind of like a, a dark window in your life where you're struggling psychologically, emotionally, it sounds like to still have the will to be able to say, let me just try this. It's pretty unusual. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's been really painful because I feel like I've been just wired this way where like, mm. I don't enjoy doing things that are scary and new, but at the same time, like I can't just do a nine to five, you know? And so like, I've always struggled, you know, with this unsettling feeling and not being able to get the outcomes, you know, that I've wanted and still like, it almost felt like masochistic at, at some point where I'm like, what, like, why do I keep trying to do something and like make something that doesn't exist or like do something that like, you know, is, is more difficult or whatever. That's something I haven't done or, or is unconventional. And I've just never fit in. So I haven't really had a choice but to do things that, you know, the way I was supposed to do things. Everybody's like, oh, you're not supposed to do it that way. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. But that's this is how I do things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, especially who are really sort of like makers who are artistically inclined, who like are really drawn to create things and to try things and they have visions in their head, which requires you to say yes to stepping into a place of uncertainty, sometimes like profound uncertainty for a long time. You have no idea. Am I good enough? Is it good enough? Like what's going to happen with this? A lot of people who have that impulse don't also have the sort of like the psychological scaffolding to feel okay in that space. And I'm raising my hand, by the way, I'm one of them. I'm really glad you brought that up because like that, um, I feel that a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to me, right? Because you kind of figure, well, if you were put on the planet with a certain impulse to do this particular thing, like, shouldn't you be equipped to handle what it takes to do it also? And yet so many artists I know, so many makers, so many creators across any domain, it is a persistent source of struggle. And it's, it's really interesting because it's like that. It's like, I, I, I literally been thinking about this today. It's like, if I'm, you know, alone and if I'm struggling with these kind of feelings, you know, and all this kind of stuff, like, how, like, why can't I figure out how to like deal with it, process it? Because like, this is perpetual, the failure and the, you know, not getting the outcome that you want and trying to, you know, try out a new idea or something. It's like, it's always been present, at least for the past, you know, 15 years or whatever, like that's been normal, but it doesn't ever feel normal. And I've never been able to 
feel comfortable in the way I always act, which is very bizarre. Yeah. On the one hand, it's really bizarre, but on the other hand, it's astonishingly common among makers. And if you haven't had that conversation with a lot of friends, <laughs> like I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective, like if I have seen that that pattern so many times, including, like I said, my in myself. And what I've seen also is a huge amount of, I think a lot of artists and makers feel like their job is when they're doing the work, they have to go to that place. That's where the really amazing stuff happens, mm. but they need to be able to touch stone in some other part of their life. So they tend to ritualize a lot of the just everyday stuff. So they kind of know what's coming. It's like, I eat the same thing every day. I wear basically the same clothes every day. I listen to the same stuff. I've seen that pattern in so many hyper-creative people. And wow. sort of like, that's where I can create anchors so that I can go to this place where I know I have to feel somewhat unanchored when I'm doing the work. You're smiling. I'm wondering yeah, if that's say, like yeah, resonating again, with like, you. <laughs> so I like this. I wear a uniform and uh, <laughs> it's very bizarre. I think because like most people don't wear uniforms and I'm starting to have to like participate in other like social things where like I've had to buy clothes. I don't have like, but I can't wear what I'm wearing to the, these other things that I'm starting to get involved in. And it's like, it's very weird. I don't know how to live. Like, I don't know how to cook it for myself. It's very weird where I'm like, I was used to working, you know, 60, 80 hours a week or whatever, just like immersed, right? Always there and serving people. But like making food for one person at home and doing it three meals a day, every day, like I have no idea how to do it, right? It's very painful. And it's so, there's so many options and it's like, I can't handle all of that. And so it's like been very chaotic just to try to figure out how to live, how to um, have these, like you said, anchors where the only one so far I've been able to do is like, well, I'm comfortable just wearing the same, you know, clothes. And for most of my life, I just shaved my head, you know, and it was like, that's, it, it was really easy. And now I'm like, okay, well, maybe I need to try to like do what other, you know, I have hair now and I have to get haircuts. And when I'm like, this is, I told the guys my first time getting a haircut. And like, uh, I can count on, on my hand five times when I've gotten one. And this is the only time where I've done it, where I'm like, I've booked an appointment for a barber. It's the first time I've had a haircut and I'm almost 40. Like very weird. <laughs> weird to the outside world, but like to you, like people who go to that space of profound creation and creativity not so weird, actually like very mainstream, like what you're sharing with me. Very um, interesting. So you've referenced a couple of times now. I, I mean, I want to get into the last couple of years because I think it's fascinating, the transformation that's happened or that not even transformation, but just sort of like the evolution. But in the early days when, when you leave art school realizing, okay, I'm not quite like the person who's in here. You already, already had this experience in the world of sushi. So you go hard into that world then, like you mm -hmm. said, you end up being all kind of taken under the wing of this one person in LA. And it sounds like that sets off this chain reaction of a series of years where then you're becoming more and more skilled. You're becoming not just an incredible sushi chef, but a restaurateur, somebody who understands how to run and manage a business and people. And you're in LA, you're in Denver, you're in Detroit, you're in New York City, building a name, building a reputation, building your skills, really kind of rising up in this world like you said, working 60, 80 hours a week, working in the restaurant business, where whether it's sushi or not, is brutal <laughs> in a yeah. lot of ways. It basically yeah. consumed your life. But I wonder also, you know, like you're drawing stick figures you know, like to get into Otis, but when you get behind a counter and, and you're like in the zone of making sushi, do you feel that same sense of just dropping into a sense of profound artistry when you're doing that? Or is it more just like a, a job? 
Yeah, no, it was uh, absolutely a passion, you know, and an obsessive kind of one. And it's actually something that I'm finding very difficult that I don't have in my art, you know, current visual mm. art practice. It's incomparable, the amount of intensity. They're polar opposites. And so I think that's really interesting that there's then maybe balance if I have both, but it's it's always been one or the other. And so, you know, for many years, I tried to then open up, you know, sushi concepts. And uh, I thought that they would be a great excuse to then uh, put my art on the wall and try to sell art <laughs> and in the most ridiculous way of like, you know what, I need a $500,000 loan so I can sell art. Like the most <laughs> ridiculous idea. But uh, I thought people need food, right? That's It's a necessity. At least that's what I thought pre-pandemic. And actually that changed after the pandemic for me. But in that idea, you know, the pursuit of sushi, it wasn't just like, try to be great at, you know, making sushi, but then there was learning about my materials, you know, that they were organic and that they were, um, that they had, had a life because they had a life. There was a responsibility for, for me as a chef to choose, you know, what to do with those, you know, to, to take a life, to nourish a life. And I called it like a mortal profession. And it was the, the most challenging thing for me is that it's there's sacrifice that has to be made every single day. And we don't think about food that way. And so for me, I wanted to make art, I guess, and, and have a creative practice with food and being mindful of these organic, you know, ingredients, materials, you know, what have you to tell a story and to learn about the planet and how to participate in that. Um, so that idea that, you know, it takes uh, destruction in order to create something new. It takes, you know, a death to nourish life that I learned those things and practiced those things as a sushi chef because it was so apparent. Like I would literally, for one of the restaurants I tried to open, buy live fish just so that I could uh, kill and process them myself with Ikejime, a, a bleeding technique, a Japanese bleeding technique that is like the the best way, most humane and most, you know, best for the protein and all that kind of stuff for texture and all that stuff. And doing it, doing, you know, killing 15 of these fish, you know, it sucked. It was awful to feel an animal die beneath your hands sucks. And so I wanted to do that because I didn't enjoy it. I wanted to feel the responsibility, right? And then to then take that uh, animal and use all of it and then make sure that it, it it was presented beautifully and tasted incredible, right? And then it made, it brought somebody joy and nourishment, right? Like that to me was beautiful. And if I could tell a story about Michigan, about this place, using the techniques that I've learned and, you know, my heritage, uh, you know, being born in Michigan uh, with Korean heritage, like that was essentially, you know, the concept that I've been uh, trying to do with, you know, with sustainable uh, seafood. And so opened up Detroit and New York's first sustainable sushi restaurants. And so it was all, it was mission. It wasn't, I want to produce food to, to make money. It wasn't a product for me. I have something to say. And it happens to be with uh, this medium. You know, I couldn't get it to all, all the things, you know, restaurants are complicated, you know. And so I got one open out of four attempts and uh, <laughs> then got kicked out. So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. Uh, it's from the outside in, you know, if you sort of like, like look at what you've done, like all the different places that you worked, and and then in the later years, especially, like there's this real emphasis on sustainability, you know, like mm. local this and local that, and like really use the entire thing. And from the outside looking in, it seems like, oh, well, this is maybe about, you know, like efficiency and a, a focus, larger focus on sustainability and the environment. But the story you're telling is not an either or, but like a yes and yes and yes that. And there's a much deeper reverence and devotion and almost sacredness to the way that you looked at what you were doing. And, you know, it wasn't just sustainability because of like 
some sort of like bigger environmental thing. It was also, it was on a micro level. It was you, your relationship with your materials, with what was, you know, when you first met this, this thing, a living being that you were then sacrificing in the name of being of service, of nourishing others, and also doing it in a way that expressed who you were and the story of you, the story of where you came from, the story of where you want to go. So there's so many layers folded into that. That's the beauty of minimalism. You know, I think as if, you know, in form, in whether it's Nikiri Sushi and doing omakase, you know, service versus, you know, my black and white paintings, like it's food and it's art in a very, very simple form. But the complexity comes from learning about the color black and that it's, you know, comprised of all the colors of the spectrum. And like, you know, it's just really fascinating to me that like the more you look, the deeper you can find, you know, meeting and connections that are not apparent, you know. But if we're able to, you know, put these things in sharp contrast, and maybe it's it's a way to be able to open our eyes to things that are true about this world that are so difficult to see because they're so close to us, right? Like, you know, the, the connection piece, right? It's we're all connected, uh, people and planet. And it's just, it's almost impossible to live and treat people that way. If we were all kind, right? If we just all chose to be kind, every single human, no matter the instance, the world would transform overnight instantly and it costs nothing and it's just really challenging to live it being human is hard and having empathy and and being able to deal with you know things that don't go the way you want them to you know how do we do the same thing today and tomorrow but do it a little bit better it's it's very everything's subjective and so it's it's challenging yeah i think a, a lot of the way that people deal with that is they literally they kind of shut things off you know like they they shut off their emotions. They shut off their empathy because to allow it in would just be devastating. Like they couldn't actually handle that. It seems like you've gone in the opposite direction, which is to sort of like, let me remove all the filters. Let me let it all in mm. and then try and figure out how to process that in a way that is constructive and uniting, you know, like for me just personally, but also for those around me and maybe for larger you know, society. Yeah, absolutely. That like mindful deep dive into self and then trying to figure out like how, how does that relate to other people? Right. And you find that you're not unique, you know, like, yes, we are, you know, but we're also not. And that's, I think the beauty of uh, this is is that I can self-discover and learn, you know, why I'm different. Uh, But at the same time, it's very easy when I start to share these things vulnerably um, that people can relate no matter what color their skin, no matter their walk of life. There's something that I'm finding that I had no idea, like when I, I did a show about my heritage and, you know, there were people who came up again, it resonated. I'm like, I don't understand, but I also, I really appreciate this. And when certain people would come up and say like, I don't have the right, like, this is your time, your space. And I don't have the right to say anything right now about this, but I'm like, wait, 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 stop right there. Like you absolutely do. It doesn't matter what you look like, or if I'm talking about my thing, it's where we're uh, having this conversation together. And uh, just like we're living on this planet together and no one has more right than another person. And so it's it's been interesting to deep dive and be hyper-focused on aspects of self to try to better understand it, but then also feeling very sort of ridiculous because like, I don't even know how to like, if other people are like, oh, you're helping me or, or inspiring, or if someone wants to learn from, you know, something I'm doing, I'm like, I, it feels ridiculous. It feels ridiculous. because I have no idea even how to solve my simple problems. Like I've had it easy and I know that I have had experience privilege and I've, I've had uh, nothing painful uh, other than, you know, the, the demons in my head. But outside of that, 
my life has been easy. And so uh, I'm grateful, but at the same time, I'm finding that I need to learn how to change that self-talk because um, everybody struggles with different things, you know, and uh, they're equally painful um, or they're, they're all things that we all have to learn how to overcome. And um, it, it all happens, I guess, between our own, our own ears. Yeah. I mean, which brings up a really interesting question. I'm so curious what your lens on this is. A lot of art comes from in some way, shape or form suffering mm. uh, or like experiences, circumstances, stimulus that like lands in your head as suffering, whether that's outside or whether it's literally self-generated um, through your mm. own thoughts and chatter. Not that all art has to come from suffering, but like historically, if you look back, it, it, art has been both a form of expression and a tool for processing a lot of just what people endure in life. And not that you know you have to go out and create suffering or the circumstances of it. It's just like things are going to happen like through life. And so art has become just this fantastic mechanism to both self-express and process things so that you can kind of come back to a better place. At the same time, you know, I've had conversations with plenty of folks who have that and it has fueled them and has fueled them to, to become exceptional at the craft of what they do. And they like the fact that they can do this and they like the fact that they have things to say. And they reach a point where life is actually starting to get pretty good, pretty grounded. And they get concerned, you know, because what if a lot of that, like that source suffering goes away? Am I no longer going to be able to create, to make art, to have impact, to express on the same level? You know, and you're sharing that for you, you feel like a lot of the things that you've struggled with have been internal. I'm curious whether you think through sort of the relationship between what you experience, between how that um, both provides for suffering, but also simultaneously provides like raw material for self-expression. Yeah. Um, I absolutely think it's a driver, you know, because like for sustainability, like for, from that lens, whether it's making sushi or making art, there's been plenty of instances where like people call me like you're a sustainable sushi, you know, I would call myself a sustainable sushi chef and, oh, like you make sustainable art or things like that. And it's very challenging for me to use that word because I don't know how to do it. And I'm not sustainable uh, in my daily living, in my, you know, what, whatever, there's always something I'm doing wrong. And so trying to figure out the degrees of like how to be better, I guess, has been a process of like trying to figure out, okay, if, if I can't actually do something that's going to make me unequivocally, you know, sustainable, then how do I actually live? Because I can't not do anything either. Like one example, a couple of years ago, I was making um, some ceramics, really loved it. Wanted to learn about my heritage through ceramics and just loved making it. And then I learned that ceramics, uh, even though they're made on natural materials, they stay on the planet, you know, for the material doesn't decompose for a million years, right? Like glass and, and stone, right? Like it doesn't decompose, but you, you end up with piles and piles of broken uh, pottery when if you go to a kiln, you know, and they uh, produce these things. There's so many things that are broken or uh, break that can't be used for whatever reason, if they're imperfect and they're destroyed, right? And so the idea of making something that could last for a million years to me is ridiculous. Like who needs my stuff for a thousand years? Probably nobody. A plastic bag will decompose in a thousand years, right? So humans probably will be gone off the planet sooner than my ceramic pot, but the plastic will be gone or, you know, could be gone, you know? And so like when I zoom out and zoom in and like try to figure out like, 
what is sustainable and like how do I actually, you know, are we saving the planet? Like, or are we trying to just preserve humanity? And I think we're just trying to preserve humanity. We're not trying to save the planet. The planet's fine. The planet's going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to exist for millions of years, right? So we're not saving the planet. We're saving, uh, the, uh, hopefully, the quality of life, you know, for humanity. And so we don't seem to care about, you know, like it, it just, I have a very hard time where like, I'll be trying to do something good and deliver, you know, but at the same time feel like I'm not making anything better. I'm salvaging a painting and then putting it behind glass, right. To preserve it. But again, like that glass, like not going to go away. Like, yeah, it's not like, but the energy that was used to produce it and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, if I would have just let the piece of paper decompose instead of salvaging it and turning it into sustainable art, uh, it would decompose and it would be fine. Like there's no reason for me to uh, preserve it behind glass. So some of it feels really ridiculous for me. And it's been very challenging to carry the guilt of how do I live day to day, right? How do I be better today than I was yesterday? How can I make my actions better for people on planet? And I don't know how to do that. And I think instead of having a very strong perspective of like, these are the things that we need to do. A lot of my work is like, I just, I don't know. I'm trying. These are the things I'm choosing to use. Uh, That's the reason why, but like, I don't know if it actually makes anything better or not. And that's, I think, an ongoing source of struggle and reason to make, I guess. But even that, like, what do I really need to make things, right? Like it costs something. It, it takes a life, you know, to nourish a life. It takes material, destroying material to produce art. And is it worth it? Um, it's something I struggle with every day. Yeah. And at the end of the day, are you wired in a way where you're capable of not, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some of us are, some of us aren't, you know, and some of us just shut down the entire process of even thinking about any of it so that we can just kind of keep on keeping on and, and catch our breath on a daily basis. And I think, in no small part, the role of artists in society and culture for time immortal has been to keep the spigot on, to yeah. feel, you know, and then to translate and to share with culture and invite them into feeling also, which is really interesting, right? Because earlier in a conversation, you said you, know, you didn't really see a role for art, you know, like as like a, a necessity in society for, even though you're doing it, even though it breathes you in no small part, whether it's you know, the process of being a sushi chef, which is being an artist, whether it's painting, whether it's whatever your medium has been. And you're saying to yourself, like, I don't see this as like a necessary part of humanity until a couple of years ago, where it seems like your, you know, like your lens on, on what art is and isn't and how it affects people and how necessary it is changes. And also there's a huge shift in your desire to center it. You know, like you end up I guess you're planning as we're heading into 2020 to open a, your own omakase a sushi place in, in an arbor. Everything gets shut down. You end up effectively, like you know, most of the rest of the planet, <laughs> unable to do much for you know a solid chunk of that year. But you emerge from that, not saying you know, like let me just bide my time and do something, and or like figure out like how can I, how can I keep saying yes to sushi, like as you know, like in, until we ride this out, like. Something, it seems like there's a, there's a switch that flips for you saying, let me actually, what if I center art? What if I center this other part of me that's been sort of like riding along the background for a while and see what happens? I'm curious about that decision. And I'm curious also whether it ties into this awakening of the fact that this actually serves a bigger purpose, both for me and for the world. Yeah. And so it was actually by chance. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, the, the last iteration was going to be the most complete expression of me as, you know, sushi chef and complemented with, you know, visual art practice as well as, as everything. And so a month before it opened, yeah, we got shut down. And then I was effectively unemployed for, for six months. And um, as soon as it happened, like my heart was broken. I was just crushed. It was the second lowest time period for me in, in my life. First time being attempted suicide, right? So this comes like right in under that where I was like, there's the, it was just the hope for not waking up tomorrow. It was there, you know, and it was everything that I was working for is taken, you know? And I'm like, this is not, this is not fair. <laughs> like how, how can this, like, I was so close. We were literally making the dishes, you know, it was all there. And uh, to have that taken away from me again was just unbearable. And so I actually didn't do anything for like the first couple months. Like it did literally like did not get off the couch, did not turn on the lights, you know, did not cook. Like I, I the only time I get up is to like get, uh, you know, take out from the pizza. I watched Game of Thrones in five days from start to finish. I was incapacitated on my couch. And over the course of that, you know, that time, it, you know, eventually, you know, tried to, you know, do, I, I took a UX design class, like in like month four or whatever, and like try to like, okay, well, I got to try to figure out how to, you know, make money and get a job and like do something normal or whatever. And that didn't work. And um, somebody in November commissioned me to make a painting uh, just out of the blue, dropped into my inbox and uh, first mural I'd painted in, you know, a couple of years. And it paid for the bills at the state. I was supposed to get unemployment and there's some glitch and whatever. So for the, that six months, didn't receive a single payment. Um, and so I ran out of money, just broke. And that mural commission came at the right time and covered my expenses at that point. Then I was like, all right, well, I've talked about wanting to be an artist. I just never had the courage to do it full time because of financial reasons or whatever. But I'm like, I have literally nothing to lose is I'm going to get evicted regardless. So if I make art and sell money if for money, like that'd be great. If I don't, who cares? Like my life is already screwed. You know, I can't go back to sushi. I don't, I don't have anything. And so then I, I became very pragmatic, you know, it's like, all right, well, what are my bills? You know, what, and, and how many paintings do I need to make in order to cover my bills? And, uh, I found out like, okay, well, can I do it with small stuff? It was December, you know? So then I was like, I'm going to make Christmas presents. This is my, you know, I'll say yes to everything and I'll make small things. I went to Ikea, started hustling, like painting on stuff from Ikea and just doing whatever the hell I could to try to make money using my art. Because uh, the goal for me was like, all right, if I can get a mural, that could pay for a whole month. But if I can't land that mural, I still need to, you know, cover my expenses. So I figured out I could do both, right? The small stuff and the big stuff. And um, that month, and I ended up covering my bills with the small stuff, and it was great. And I was able to reinvest and just kind of make another all-in kind of, you know, uh, went for it with doing my first solo show using blueprints that I had salvaged uh, almost a decade ago uh, that I've been holding on for a big, beautiful show in a gallery. You know, I had this great idea of what I was going to do, and of course, I'm like, you know what? Like again, I was like, screw it. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not going to get gallery representation. I'm nobody. I can't show anywhere. We're still locked down. So I'm going to hang, uh, make my paintings in my apartment. And then I'm going to hang them on my walls, cover every single, you know, white wall in, in my place. And I'm going to, I'm going to do a virtual show and I'm going to sell them online. And I did, and it was uh, really successful, almost sold out. And uh, that all just kind of kickstarted. So that was January, 2021. And since then uh, I've built a, a 
incredible art business and a practice that has nourished me um, in many ways. And so I think in thinking about how art has an impact, right? And I used to think, like again, it was superfluous. But when I really sort of thought back on on art, like in, in January, when I was just like, what the hell just happened? Like I went from thinking like completely screwed, have no idea what I'm going to do with myself to like, I have more than I need. Like, this is nuts. And so I thought about that, you know, back then. And it was like, okay, well, when I was super depressed, the only thing that kept me from probably killing myself was entertainment, right? When people were locked down, we turned to to music, to art, to dance, to writing, to, you know, reading. And all of this stuff was like, that kept humanity together. <laughs> like, we uh, turned to art. And then like coming out of this thing, then art has in the past year given me more than two times, maybe three times what I ever made as a sushi chef in a year. So then from the satisfying my, my, you know, the scarcity in making just enough money to pay my bills, you know, to pay my debt, to having money I could save, like, or, you know, it's art has had those two profound impacts on me where I feel like it is not uh, superfluous that art, um, same thing is, is the idea of art and what it can do is more powerful maybe than product, like things that I really value that maybe America values is like uh, things, but ideas are maybe more powerful. And the truth that we have everything that we need to save the planet, uh, we have the technology, we have all the stuff. The problem is human will. So what is going to change that? It's not going to be a new product. Um, but if somebody or a group of people is able to persuade humanity into deciding to change, right? If there is some sort of way that we can we can do that, then millions, billions of people can change the way uh, they they live and act. Uh, but it's not going to be through you know a new phone, you know, or, or whatever it may be, right? And so, but it's the content in that phone, it's the stories, it's all like those things have so much more impact than a thing. And so, the power of art to me is, and the need to make art to to make things that inspire to get us to think about the world in a different way to challenge us on how we live. I think it's absolutely necessary for humanity. I think we've evolved to the point where we need art, and I think that's a really interesting thing. We're humans are weird. We we need this stuff. <laughs> we are weird for sure. Um, but it, it, I mean, it's such a powerful comment, right, that you're making, which is that you know the. We're looking for like, what is the intervention? What is the technique? What is the process? What's the technology that's going to get us back to, you know, a better human condition? And, you know, like fundamentally, we need to reconnect with our own humanity and then be able to somehow see and acknowledge the humanity and others, especially those who don't look like us, believe like mm. us, worship like us, like, you know, and conversations are having a really tough time doing that. Politics, technology is having a real tough time doing it. But if like you can stand in front of a piece of, of art or listen to a piece of music or read, you know, like a line in a book and it breaks you open and somebody else has that same reaction. Like all of a sudden there's like, you've just reconnected to yourself, to what makes your heart beat. And you've also realized that, wow, that person that I thought was profoundly different than me somehow is responding in a really similar way. Like there's got to be something about them and, and me that's more similar than I ever imagined. And maybe that's the opening to something bigger. Um, so I, I completely agree. I think like art, especially at moments like this, is just, it's so important and catalytic, potentially catalytic in so many different ways. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm so curious when you get that, when you're basically on your couch and you're like, I got nothing. And that first email comes in and however it came into you saying like, make me a piece of art. I don't know if you're a spiritual person at all, but I sometimes look at moments like those and I'm like, this is the universe sending a signal. (laughs) In that moment, when you like literally like click on the open or whatever it is, it's going through your mind and heart. I do think that things happen for a reason. You know, and I, I believe in, you know, divinity, you know, and and maybe not, you know, traditional religion, but time, like coincidence and timing, like I'm finding uh, in my life that everything is happening in the right time, whether I like it or not. And that's really been special. And like, you know, getting to open that, it's like, yeah, I mean, this this is crazy. Like this is 
seems uh, too conveniently well-timed to be uh, just a coincidence, you know, and to continue to have my needs met in that sort of way that the struggle, you know, was there, but I, I still had everything I needed. Like I was still fine. Yes. You know, it's been emotionally very difficult for me, but like I've never starved, you know, I've never needed water or food or a, 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 you know, shelter. Like I'm very grateful, I'm very lucky. Right. But in those moments, like it's, it's, it's hard to, even when I like try to kill myself, like it, it didn't happen. And it was this very weird thing where I'm like, okay, like it felt like this is not going to end right now. And I knew that it wasn't the right time. It was very weird that things continue to happen in my life that I've heard or experienced something that allow, allows me to know that um, I need to do something. I need to keep going, right? And I need to, whatever it is, even if I don't know, you know, uh, if I'm supposed to put left foot or right foot forward, right? That just by making sure that I put left and right foot, you know, and, and repeat, like, that's the job. Like, I got to do that. I got to figure out how to get up and put left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And that's how my paintings work, you know? And it's that daily reminder. I try to paint. Uh, I don't paint daily, um, which is very weird. I only paint when it's necessary, which is also very weird. But the choosing to do something that's scary, and for me, painting is actually terrifying. Um, I don't enjoy paint. It makes me nervous and just very uncomfortable. And so I do it uh, intentionally to help overcome that feeling, to remind myself that I need to do the work. I need to follow the journey. I need to follow the path, even if I don't know if I'm going down the right way. Um, and that's proven for me to be the right way to do it, I guess. Mm. So how do you, you said yeah, you only paint when you know it's necessary. How do you know when it's necessary? Yeah, it's weird. So I go long periods of time without painting. And so a lot of my work is thinking and it's very, it sucks uh, you know, being in my head with all the the guilt and all the things and the concerns. And so like initially, you know, I was too afraid to paint because I didn't want to destroy a piece of paper. You know, the paper is perfect. Am I going to add to this and make it better? Or am I going to end up putting this thing in the garbage? And more times than not, it's going to end up in the garbage. And the way I paint now, not a single thing goes into the garbage. I don't allow that. It's not allowed in my process. When I paint on a, a mural, it's freehand. It's directly on the wall. There's no sketch. There's always an element of risk. And there is like, uh, even if I do a canvas or whatever, like typically the work is commissioned. And so same thing It's one go for them and either, you know, they like it or they don't. And thankfully every time they've liked it, but there is no do-overs and that risk and the, the lack of producing waste in my artistic practice is very important, but not painting is hard and painting is also hard. So it's it's very weird to not enjoy the free time, um, the thinking, and to also really struggle while painting. But the result of the painting, the image that it makes and the feeling that it gives me and the feeling that it gives the people that end up getting to live with those things, that's the thing that like it drives me to do these things both, you know, living in loneliness and, you know, in, in my head and also doing a practice that makes me uncomfortable because I'm not good, particularly good. You know, I can't draw, you know, a house or what, like I'm not skilled. Like other people are really skilled, you know, I'm not like, and so it's, it's, it's uh, overcoming all those personal and, you know, sort of professional fears is that's the work and I need to do it. And so when I'm uh, allowed to do it based on, you know, time, permission, what have you, I do it. And after I'm very grateful 
but then I get anxious, you know, for the next one. <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, it's almost like the, what you're describing is a, is a practice, you know, it's, I'm thinking about my meditation practice as you're describing it, you know, like I practice pretty much every day and half or a dozen years. Um, and it's not because of the way that I feel when I'm meditating, because my mind is usually spinning all over the place when I'm meditating. It's not the classic, mm. oh, it's completely Zen, like calm, chill, you know, like, that is not the practice. I do it because I know if I do it on a regular basis over time, it changes the quality of me, just of me on a more persistent state. I know I like the way that I move through the world just more ambiently when I do it. But like the actual doing of it isn't necessarily joyful or chill or blissed out. I like the change that it cultivates over time and how it allows me to relate to, the, to my world, to the people closest to me in the world around me. It sounds like it's you know, like that's at least part of what's happening with you as well. It's a form of expression. And at the same time, you know, it, it's a form of practice for you. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you have these rules that are kind of there, like the whole notion of it's not designed first. It's not planned out. It's not sketched out on a wall first, you know, or on a map or whatever your, your medium is, is, I mean, talk about adding to it being a terrifying experience, <laughs> high yeah. stakes uncertainty, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even with like heirloom documents, right? Right. Like, like I've been, I've painted on uh, documents hand drawn by ancestors, right? Like for like blueprints and stuff. And it's like, there's no messing. You're not allowed to mess up. <laughs> but, but here's my question though. Like on the one hand, it's training you to be thoughtful and to step into the moment and to just channel with as much integrity as you can and trust in the process. On the other hand, does that lead potentially to an expectation of perfectionism that can be kind of self-brutalizing that every time you step up to do this thing, like it has to reach a certain level? Yes and no. So with sushi, I was locked into this perfectionism. I, I am a perfectionist. And so I struggle with all or nothing. Either my place is, you know, immaculate or it's chaos right now. It's chaos. You know, my mise en place, it, everything just, it's perfect, right? It has to be. And that was driving me crazy too. Being in that world, I, I loved it. I love doing it, but I also really struggled in that. And so my artistic practice is very mindful of my tendency to want to be perfect and want the world to be perfect and people to be perfect. And we can't. And so... I'm trying to learn how to live in, uh, you know, more realistically and being more kind to both others and myself by allowing my work to be authentic and, and that being the goal. And so again, with those rules for me, um, the goal is not to create a perfect image because I don't know how to do that. And I don't want to learn how to do that. For me, the goal is dynamic balance. And so for me, the way I move line on paper, um, it's connecting, you know, abstract characters which I like is a metaphor for both uh, visual, but also written in terms of like Asian culture characters, you know, so the calligraphy and, you know, graffiti kind of influences merging. And so for me, it's about finding comfort in the process. And if, if I'm able to find that dynamic balance of uh, line on defined, uh, you know, canvas, substrate, whatever it is, then I have done the work well. And so every time I do it and I, I can achieve that balance on page, it's something that I've learned how to do. And I, I feel very confident that I'm able to do that uh, ongoing, uh, whereas in my life, I cannot. And so, again, it's about this practice of striving to be like, I call it chasing my paintings, is I want to live the way that I paint. 
and I want to find balance and I want to be, have it be organic, you know, one stroke, you know, one character built upon the next with, you know, geometric and then organic shapes, you know, soft and hard, these things that are juxtaposed, living in harmony, you know, all this stuff, but in real, in real life, doing the things, uh, you know, choosing sustainable materials or like whatever, like all the things to me, one-to-one, like this is how I'm supposed to live. Yeah. I have no freaking clue how to do it. And so that the painting is a driving force for my life now. And I'm far, far behind in terms of how I'm able to produce success compared to, I think, a painting when it's relatively simple and minimal, uh, yet it carries these layers. And so I, I just need to learn how to talk softer and be kinder to myself as it'll take a whole lifetime and I'm not going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's hard. Yeah. As do we all. <laughs> You know, I think when we're really being honest, that's the place that most of us end up. Um, You wrote something which feels like it's kind of like right in line to share. These are your words. Through the work, I strive to overcome anxiety and fear through organic mark making in an effort to achieve balance. I create art to learn how to live. And I strive to live a life of purpose filled with joy, kindness, and generosity. With that, I believe the highest form of art is a life well lived. That sounds pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah i want to do that <laughs> and it feels like a good place for us to kind of like wrap our conversation as well so as i always ask every guest and conversation here in this container of good life project if i offer up the phrase to live a good life what comes up i, I wish i had an answer you know but i i think i, I need to i want to wake up uh ho- hoping to figure out what what that is hmm. thank you Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Peter Tunney about his journey from finance and business to the world of art. You'll find a link to Peter's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen, then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered. Because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.